In my apartment, March 23, my living room, 1.07am. Dear diary, hello, do you remember me? My name is Nora Fawn. You were given to me when I was a 26-year-old mum of four-year-old Joy and a brand new baby called Hope. You might not recognise me nowadays. I looked much prettier then. Ageing makes us all look like we've melted. I was married in those days too, to Leonard. We lived in the Burbs, in a solid brick house with a bindi pop lawn that was more stimulating to walk on than the suburb was to live in. I secretly wanted to be an artist. I found an injured bird on that lawn once. I used to love finding injured birds. I liked talking to them and singing to them and protecting them until they healed. Well, usually the birds healed. But that bird I found on the lawn didn't. Leonard threw it out with our dinner scraps when I fell asleep reading to our joy. The next morning he told me he'd thrown the bird out after it died, but I knew that wasn't true. Anyway, you probably never saw that lawn or that house, dear diary, because shortly after my friend Thelma gifted you to me, you got lost in the hospital laundry pile full of bloody towels and pads and surgical gowns and then brought home in a plastic bag with just a smudge of transparent red mucus on your top right-hand corner. After that, my mother hid you in the garage in case the sight of you made me too sad. Turns out she was right. I found you in a bucket several years later, and you did make me sad. But I still moved you safely to my treasure box. Thelma, my independently wealthy, unemployed, bird's nest-haired friend, made you herself. So basically, your two exercise books sticky taped together with pink tissue paper stuck on the cover and the words Baby's First Diary written in dripping blue glitter glue on the front. Thelma is one of those people who believes that anyone can be creative and at the same time completely disproves it. I love Thelma, but I find it hard to show it. I find it hard to show my love for my other best friend, Saula, too. In fact, I don't express my love for anyone very well. I had a therapist once who told me that I resent both loving and being loved because it makes me feel vulnerable. This comment also made me feel vulnerable, so I stopped going to the therapist. I can't afford to have strangers tell me my faults. I have children. That's their job. When Hope was born, Sula, a semi-professional bikini line waxer, gave my newborn daughter a voucher for a day of pampering at the local beauty spa. I remember my mother Daphne said, what a stupid present to give to a sick baby, and then re-gifted the voucher to herself. Anyway, I'm sorry I haven't written in you before this moment, dear diary. I guess I've just been very busy for the past 25 years. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading Magazine is a monthly publication dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hi there, Greg Dobbs here with the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Welcome. Today I'm talking to Gretel Colleen about her new book, My Daughter's Wedding. I usually give a rundown on the author's career at this point, so here goes. Gretel Colleen is a media personality, social commentator, journalist, former Big Brother and Logies host, author of more than 20 books. I think I left out Mother there, but it all started with comedy. But apparently it didn't really start with comedy, but rather with a serious reading of a poem that somehow turned into comedy. 
Greta Colleen, welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Thank you for having me. That intro really is only a fraction of the story. <laughs> Can you add a bit more, 25 words or less? Um, no, I can't. Let me think. Um, so I've written a lot of books. I did start accidentally. I was doing a, a serious poem. I was uh, studying communications. I dropped out of law and uh, and then it just crept incrementally. But my career has been totally without plan. It's just been full of surprises. But writing has always been underneath it. Writing is has been what I've done since I was a tiny little thing. Why have so many comedians dropped out of law? I think, well, I can't speak on behalf of all the others. I do know a couple um, and a couple who finished and still went on to do comedy. Um, I had a debating and public speaking background. And in a generation before me, you might have gone into teaching or nursing. And then in my generation, you did law or medicine. Now, hopefully, girls have far more opportunities educationally. But when I got to the the first um, sessions, I thought I'd find fellow travellers there. And uh, it was ridiculous, really, because you're not going to find uh, a lot of innovative thinking necessarily in the practice of law because it's all about precedent. But I, I can imagine a few other performers and comics have thought the same thing, that you'd find your fellow travellers, which is what life's about, isn't it? In your book, My Daughter's Wedding, it's all about Nora Fawn writing not just in her diary but to her diary. What's the power of the diary? I really wanted to tell this story from Nora's perspective, not with her analysing it but with her telling it and the way she tells the story reveals her vulnerability. There's a lot of pain in Nora and she's she just refers to it as it hurts so much, but she doesn't know why, and it's her daughter that's inflicted this pain upon her. She doesn't know why. And so I didn't want I didn't want Nora to be outside knowing the answer to this. This is her exploration and her journey to answer this question. and And I wanted to write in the diary because it's intimate. She needed a best friend, and the best friend turned out to be the diary. Is the diary symbolic in some way? Yes, I, I didn't write it intentionally symbolic. It was it was far more practical than that. She justifies it. Uh, she tells her relatives that she's making notes about the wedding and keeping it up. But her tiny little explanation in there is she wants to find out by writing over these days in preparation for her daughter's wedding, which is what the, the book is all about, she wants to try and discover what she's done wrong. Her daughter uh, disappeared for four years. She kept in touch with her sister but didn't keep in touch with her mum and it has broken her mother's heart. But her mother is stoic and survives by seeing the humour and things and the laughter but but inside the, the diary she does confess, I want to find the answer, I want to do better and I want to fix things. I think we've got to talk about mother-daughter relationships because yeah. that's the soul of the novel. It may surprise you, but I've never been <laughs> either a mother or a daughter, but I've observed quite a few. Yes. What's the deal with mother-daughter relationships? Are they more complicated than other family relationships? May I ask you a question? I guess. Um, <laughs> um, in your observation, would you suggest they might be? Um, well, they're certainly more troublesome. <laughs> uh, I think, uh, and passionate, I think. 
passionate, uh, to be quite honest, they're things that I usually want to avoid. I, I try not to be in the middle of those. Uh, I, yes. I, I try to be a bystander and yeah. sometimes it's hard being a bystander, but it's something you've got to do, I suppose, as a husband, boyfriend, whatever it might be. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Um, even in talking about um, the book with um, if there are men and women in an interview situation, the men do tend to pull back a little bit because this is, it's planet women. It's where this incomprehensible connection is observed, where this this one minute you're each other's best friends and then the next minute you're at arch rivals and but when a daughter is in in agony she'll ring her mum but then she might tell her partner that it's her mum that's made her feel agonized it's so fraught um but i love it and i don't understand it myself to be loved by your mother it it's just the most extraordinarily complex and at the same time if hopefully viewed with light-hearted eyes every now and then, hilarious. It's so irrational. Um, I was told recently, um, a friend of mine was talking about her daughter, and she said, apparently, it's all right for the mother to be the daughter's best friend, but it's completely tragic if the daughter is the mother's best friend. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. That so, is tragic. In fact, you, I think in the book you there's a couple of quotes there. You say the daughters, mother daughters, fighting like enemies one minute, laughing like school pals the next. Yeah, yeah. It's um, I I wanted to celebrate it. I think often motherhood is dismissed. You hear so many people telling jokes about how silly their mother was and how, oh, mum sent me this text, look at it, or mum doesn't even know how to use the internet, or mum made me my sandwiches again. I think... I think that the depth of that love, I also say in the book that a mother is never separated from her children when, when, when the, the, they're always connected by the umbilical cord. It's just that the scissors make it invisible. And, and that's how I feel with my children. And, and I do understand my daughter, my mum is getting older and I wanted to look at this relationship while I had time with my mum too. So, and so it's deeply personal, but weirdly, of course, a very, very similar experience, like so many deeply personal things, that it's just, it's a human experience as well. Nora's really caught in a difficult position. She's managing upwards as well as downwards. Meaning mm. She's managing her mother as well as her daughter's. Uh, is that something that you are experiencing right now? Well, I'm in a fortunate situation in that I have three sisters and we've really come together to help look after mum. And uh, I think there are so many people who are my age, and age is not really relevant to how old you are to be caring for somebody. But one of the things about looking after someone who's older than you is that confrontation for yourself personally of wow this is what old age, old age is one can't help but think what is the point in this what I, I think there is a point but gee I've struggled to find it um, one of the wonderful things is it has brought our family closer as I said as mum gets older and but I know everybody's not in that situation 
I think old age is a is a very frightening thing for many of us to have on the horizon and and to be juggling that and learning yourself and trying to reconcile the relationship you have with your own parents while at the same time trying to prove that you've always been right with your own children is is an interesting uh, lesson to learn. I've got a little confession to make and don't tell anybody, but I look look after my mum who's 96 and she sort of looks after me too and really don't tell anyone this. She still does my washing. (laughs) Of course she does because, because it's an act of love and it's, and it's an act of purpose and she loves you still like you're her little boy and I completely get that. And she doesn't trust anyone else to do the washing. That's the other well, thing. Well, they, they probably wouldn't do it nearly as well. Oh, good honour. Maybe that's what keeps your mum going, that purpose. I think it might be. Nora Fawn seems quite comfortable with her constant humiliation. Is that necessarily part of motherhood or necessarily part of comedy? Um, two very different questions, isn't it? When I'm filing them in my mind, I think that, well, we can all feel a little bit humiliated and, and unappreciated. Mums can be the butt of jokes. And in this book, Nora talks about what it feels like to be treated like you're a moron. And and we've prob- possibly all done it to our mums or done it to the generation above. It's like, what would you know? And, I, and Nora is so upset about it. She doesn't articulate it to anyone else, but she says, in you treating me this way, you are invalidating everything I have suffered, experienced, learnt, endured in my life because you are saying it was all worth nothing. Now, that's what she writes. She doesn't say it. Can I say that mums are very often very good at pretending that they don't know about things? I think that a lot of mums, once again, as with all lawyers, I cannot speak on behalf of all mums. I did do enough law to know that I can only speak on my own behalf. I think we become very good at taking the path of least resistance, and but in particular knowing what battles to fight. And we can't pick up on every single thing, um, so we, we quietly choose it. Nora is not happy about being ridiculed and humiliated. It hurts her. And I think a lot of people feel like that. And and she's stoic. She doesn't mention it, but she's really, really hurting. And that's why in the tiny little moments where she is appreciated, when her daughter asks her for her advice, Nora talks about that moment wanting to turn it into a trinket on a bracelet to wear with her all the time. My daughter needed me again, like your mum with the washing. You know, I'm needed, I'm seen, I'm appreciated. And although all of this journey is about her daughter's wedding, it's about the mum trying to reconnect with her daughter. She doesn't want her daughter to disappear. And just regarding, just lightly on the, the comment that you made about Comedy, I think for me, comedy is about allowing my audience to identify with something true. We often hear stand-up comics, for example, saying, what about when you're walking down the street? And the audience, oh, yeah, and they've never noticed it, but now that someone points it out, they notice it. But if you can take that moment of trust and the people are with you, 
then you can go to the flights of imagination because you have the trust of your audience. So here, the trust is the shared, as mothers and as daughters ourselves, whether we've had our own children somewhere or other, someone has hopefully mothered us. It's finding that shared intensity, but making light of it because it's already got a trusted foundation. Nora Fawn really is the emotional centre of her family, but her children seem to be devoid of any emotional intelligence at all. In fact, I've got to say, I didn't really like those two daughters and are not too yeah. keen on her mum either. Is there a crossover point in our, well, our, in your maturity, in women's maturity, where they gravitate towards that emotional centre? And can men make the same transition? <laughs> these are these are very complex questions here. Um, I think it's interesting that you comment on the those female characters, the daughters and also her mum, because a lot of women relate to them. A lot of women have been at the receiving end of that. Mum in this is developing dementia and her she seems to have lost all notion of any sort of self-censorship. And yet she still has her wisdom and and dementia comes in many, many forms, but there are interesting aspects I've found where someone can live in all time zones at once, the present, the past, the future, they're all in there together and the wisdom and the ridiculousness and the cutting comments, it's, it's quite an extraordinary uh, conversation to have sometimes with someone who is has dementia. So the mum has that. The mum is really important because she's the parallel relationship that we know and Nora realises that everything her daughter is criticising her for, she's criticised her own mum for. I do think that we become wiser as we get older because weirdly in our society we think that young people know more than older people. I don't know why that is. You know, when well, it, when it comes to mobile phones, they certainly do. But when it comes to mobile phones, when it comes to uh, funding something creative, it's, oh, we've got to get young people in. We totally dismiss wisdom and experience. I mean, really, of course, we must get wiser as we get older. We begin to put the pieces of the puzzle together. But one of the things about youth, which I guess is is one of its charms as well, in terms of, of your comment about men evolving, um, well, some some people don't evolve. Some men I know have not evolved way past being 12. Um, but I'm learning at my age to appreciate people for who they are, not for the bits that don't make up some notion that I had of what someone should be. In fact, I've got this theory about see someone for, there's a friend of mine and I just think, you're a bear. You're not, you're just a big bear. And and that's okay. I'm not, you're not going to run like a leopard. You're not going to swing like a monkey. You're going to be reliable and you'll provide fish. And that is. <laughs> like, is that what bears do? That's what the bear in my mind is doing, the brown bear, I think I have imagined. But I, it's, I think that women, I don't want to underestimate our instincts, our connections with other daughter with our daughters and with other women but I think also it's really important to me that all of the women in this show a different side of being a woman as well so the friendships are different some of her friends are not the sharpest tools in the shed 
but their hearts are huge. And even Nora realises that. She's been a little bit dismissive of her own mates and then she realises actually because she gets confronted by other people's success, other people's wealth in this book as the wedding approaches. And, and she realised actually this bunch of nutbags is my bunch of nutbags and, and this is a pretty good place to be. Yeah, and of course her friends become her family too. And in this book, um, Nora's ex-husband is there and his new wife. So while she might have, she might verbalise kind of smarty pants, smart ass comments, if we look at her life, she's a very embracing, kind woman. And I think she's taken on, she provides some of the belittling to herself that she's absorbed from those around her. But it's not a miserable book by any means. It rockets along, as you know, and um, and everything that's truth is bounded by something that makes you giggle as well. But that's a nice way to package the truth, I think. Absolutely. There's also that thing, it's funny, but it's sad at the same time. You've got mm. that mother-daughter thing and all the things that go on around that and planning the wedding, which is a bit of a riot, really. But there's also ageing and, as you mentioned, this the spectre of dementia um, within the pages. But there's also some kind of redemption for Nora. This funny, sad thing, that is, do they have to go together? They always seem to go together. Life is, a lot of it is how you perceive it. I think for me, uh, who has experienced as much trauma and sadness as others and not nearly as much as, as yet others, um, but for me a very, very important way for me to process things is to know that at some point I'll be telling this story and it'll be funny. So I need to shorten the distance between the experience of the pain and the telling of the funny part. And for me, the meaning of life is absolutely enormous and I've pondered it since I was three. It's really my driving force. You started um, early if you started at three. Yeah, no, really, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's been my dominant thought all my life and to, to optimise the experience of being alive. So do happy and sad always come together? I think there's a whole philosophy attached to that, but, yes, they can. Nora seems to be exploring that for sure. One thing that also uh, struck me about the book is where does Nora find the time to write to this diary? She's so busy doing other people's work. Where is she writing this stuff? You know that because you've read it and you know that she she sneaks off. She either she finds excuses to write it in front of everybody because she pretends, as I said, that it's the wedding planning that she's making mistakes or she's actually sneaking off and her dependence on the diary becomes stronger and stronger. She does talk at times about how she's wanted to share the pain of, of her daughter's disappearance with her two best friends and even that becomes complicated because her two best friends helped them helped her to raise her daughters. She was a single mum and they helped her. And so, as happens in the big wide world, commenting on something is not just your own world. They, her two friends can feel that any failing of this daughter is a failing of theirs as well because they helped to raise her. And they also, as Nora suspects, they possibly love her children more than they love her. And so she talks about trying to connect and trying to explain this. And we all know the loneliness of wanting to explain something to someone and they don't get it. It makes it 
even worse. So she's constantly trying to do it and and she feels alone in this and that's why the diary is so vital. But as, as it progresses, we realise actually she's loved. She just didn't know how to feel it. It's not as simple as that, but I think sometimes we're looking at apples and wondering why they're not pears and they love her absolutely. Just as a final thing, you've been a voiceover artist for quite a few years. Someone mm. told me you did the City Rail announcements, but that may or may not be true. <laughs> it's There's somebody who I don't think sounds like me, but others think sounds like me doing it. And this has been a rumour that has gone on for years and years and years, and every now and then I'll get a message, a tweet or something or other saying, could you please settle our bet? Someone, we're on the train now, is that you? And... Uh, I, I don't know how much money I've lost or won for people. Um, and I don't really do voiceovers now, but when my children were little, the, the two primary ways I earned a living were through voiceovers for advertising and you know, TV, radio and some animations and, and things like that and narrations of documentaries and whatever. And bizarrely, in terms of secure income, because I was a single mum raising my children, writing books, which is why there were so many children's books that I wrote during that time because voiceovers, you never knew how many you'd get in a week. But if I knew what my book deal was, if I could write the book in that period of time, then I was earning this much. And and my children then I, I, I asked to, not got to, I asked them to illustrate it. But in terms of any kind of voiceover that people might recognise, because I did stop years ago, but for a while I was, um, when you rang the... Telstra, do you remember all uh, all those years ago and say, the number you have dialed is not connected. Please check the number and dial again. Well, that was me. Um, and it was kind of odd when I would ring myself and tell myself that I'd got the wrong number. But anyway, that that one isn't around anymore. Very I was expecting a trip around the city circle, but I guess the Telstra wrong number will have to suffice. <laughs> yeah, it will. Greta Colleen, it's been a great pleasure talking to you and good luck with the book. Thank you. And thank you so much for sharing your podcast with me. I've loved it. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, say hi to your mum. I will. Hi, mum. <laughs> Gretel says hi. <laughs> I've been talking to Gretel Colleen about her new book, My Daughter's Wedding. It's published by Hachette and it's available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au and all good bookstores. You've been listening to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. And my name's Greg Dobbs.